0: Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for conversations with the winners and finalists of the 2021 BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as discussions with book lovers from across the province and territory my guest for this episode is benjamin perrin and i'm going to let ben introduce himself
1: yeah hi my name is ben perrin i'm a law professor at the university of british columbia and i'm the author of overdose heartbreak and hope in canada's opioid crisis
0: overdose heartbreak and hope in canada's opioid crisis is a finalist for the 2021 jim diva prize for writing that provokes and the 2021 hubert evans Nonfiction prize Overdose is an important book that deals with heavy subject matter, including drug use and violence. If these topics are challenging or triggering for you, please take time to take care of yourself. Ben starts this episode with a reading from the book.
1: Vancouver's downtown community court is located in the heart of the downtown east side, often called the country's poorest postal code. As I arrived at the courthouse at 745 in the morning just across the street, Someone sleeping outside in the rain or a makeshift shelter, old tents, tarps, and cardboard boxes. That's what passes as a home in one of the wealthiest countries on earth. The Innovative Court was designed to help the criminal justice system recognize that there are underlying health and social issues, including alcoholism and drug addiction, that contribute to reoffending. It has social workers, mental health workers, and other professionals on site, but it's still a criminal court. I have seen with my own eyes people in the back alleys in this neighborhood drawing water into their syringes from a puddle in the lane and injecting it, said Judge Elizabeth Burgess. Using filthy water to dilute powdered drugs so that they can be injected exposes people to risks of disease and infection. It was clear to me that Judge Burgess has tried to see the world through the perspectives of those two judges. When I met with her in a small boardroom before her morning court session, I asked about her experience with the opiate crisis and the people who end up in her courtroom facing criminal charges. I've got a few of them who are regulars here. All of them happen to be First Nations who witnessed their father murdering their mother as small children, said Judge Burgess. A couple of them actually were so small that they were left with the body for days before anyone discovered it. And yeah, they're addicts now. It was a horrific story that transformed the image in my mind of a chronic adult offender driven by drug addiction to commit petty crimes into the image of a frightened young child, traumatized, alone, terrified. It's not that you're just necessarily an addict if you had some horribly tragic experience in your life. They've got no support, said Judge Burgess. They've never been diagnosed. They're severely mentally ill, never seen a doctor, That happens in this city. It's a miracle what some of them have been through, but that's the old cliche, and it strikes me every day. The biggest lottery in your life is the family you're born into. It's nothing to your credit. You're not any better. I wanted to know more about what role childhood trauma had had on substance use as an adult, and several experts pointed me to the Adverse Childhood Experiences or ACEs questionnaire. It asks just 10 yes or no questions about your childhood, but it can tell a lot about your risk of experiencing a host of challenges later in life. There are questions about physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, as well as neglect, parental divorce or separation, incarceration of a parent, and exposure to domestic violence, substance use, and mental illness. Each of the 10 questions to which you answer yes counts as a point. These points add up to your ACE score, which ranges from 0 to 10. Traumatic events and experiences in childhood can lead to social, emotional, and cognitive impairment, which can in turn lead to high-risk behaviors that increase the risk of health problems and premature death. And these harmful childhood experiences can have cumulative effects. For each ACE point, a person's risk goes up for a range of challenges, including poor academic achievement poor work performance, mental health issues, certain diseases, suicide attempts, and illicit drug use and substance abuse. A massive study published in the journal Pediatrics found that people with an ACE score of five or more, those who'd experienced at least half of the childhood traumas asked about, were seven to 10 times more likely to have an illicit drug use problem than someone who had an ACE score of zero. Each A's point represents a two- to four-fold increase in the likelihood of early use of illicit drugs. Many people in our society are living with deep pain and unresolved trauma. They need our compassion, not our condemnation. Yet condemnation is precisely how people who use illicit drugs are treated, a social outcast. We insist that they accept personal responsibility while we ignore our own moral responsibility to help them. More than anything, they're blamed blamed for the bad decisions or poor choices they've made with no understanding or empathy for how they came to arrive at that place in their lives. They're even blamed for dying. People think if you're going to do ju- drugs, you're asking for it, said Castor. If you're going to do drugs, well, tough on you. If something happens, you know what I mean? The image of those young children being left alone with their murdered mother for days is etched in my mind. And it speaks of an even longer term intergenerational trauma contributed to such horrific events. Bill Mullard, president of Union Gospel Mission, said their life hasn't worked well. They've had typically some blunt force trauma early in their life. And that blunt force trauma, while well, you're kid, is physical abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse. His organization runs a network of hot meal programs, shelters and substance use programs in and out of downtown Vancouver. He said the drugs at that point aren't about partying. They aren't about having a good time. It's about anesthesia. They use these drugs to mitigate those emotional stresses they have. Most of the people I've dealt with in my career have been entrenched street drug users, said Connor King, staff sergeant with the Victoria Police Department. Almost all of them will tell you a story of things like abuse as kids, disconnection with parents, poverty, trauma in childhood, trauma in adolescence, whether it's domestic violence, sexual abuse, injury or illness, when they were in the workforce as a young man or woman despair. That's where opioids can come into the picture. Thank you for Fire Chief Gerald Reed described fentanyl. It's got a reputation as something that feels good to take. Our patients call it a warm hug. Opioids are powerful painkillers and unfortunately there are many many people with tremendous pain and trauma in our society. We see them now as grown adults but when we step back and See them as people with lives that are often full of traumatic and painful experiences, holding on to memories that have been unaddressed. And with untreated mental health challenges, we start to realize that they need our love and compassion.
0: The place I wanted to um, start, and I know you write about this a bit in the book, but I was wondering if you could share um, what started you on the journey of writing this book and, and researching and all that. How did that start for you?
1: Yeah, well, I, I had been a law professor for for you know quite a few years at this point. Um, I'd gone off and worked in Ottawa. I'd even uh, been a senior uh, lawyer and policy advisor in criminal justice areas to uh, Conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper. And as I came back from that uh, job, it was just a, a few years later, really driving to and from work. Teaching criminal at UBC, going about my life, I kept hearing, you know, story after story on the news of people overdosing and dying, and these were individuals, like individual people. It's not like today when we just get monthly statistics. It was the media was actually reporting on individual cases, and it just sounded like a bad movie. Like what was going on in this this in our community? Like it was some sort of toxic poisoning is the first thought i had like some kind of batman uh you know place uh, uh storyline or something you know some evil villain has like is killing off homeless people like literally that's how it sounded i was like this is weird and it, it wasn't yet a call to crisis or an emergency at that point it was it was really percolating up and as i heard more and more of those stories it began to bother me it began to bother me that um first of all people were dying but second of all that i wasn't more concerned I was just going about my day I'd hear another case and just keep moving like nothing had happened and I pulled my car over um, one morning after hearing yet another story of someone dying of an illicit drug overdose death and around this time they had um, they had recently declared it was a public health emergency this is in 2016 and um, I had already you know been grappling with a whole bunch of issues in my own life um, and had started you know just pursuing my faith more and so I prayed I prayed a prayer I asked God to Give me a heart of compassion for pe- for the people who are being affected here. That I would care. And just a few months after that, I started this project. I, I set out to research and go on the front lines um, to go into the overdose prevention sites to meet with family members of survivor of people who had had um, died and and uh, some who had survived and had, had you know are, are struggling and some who are moving on and have, have actually been able to get healing and, and move forward. Uh, and you know, physicians, police, judges, the border guards essentially anyone that had um, first had experience with this crisis, I, I, I endeavored to meet with and speak with and try to understand what was happening uh, from their perspective. And so that's how it all, all, it all began.
0: I think one of the things um, for me as I was reading the book that I was confronted with over and over again was how little I knew and understood about the opioid crisis. And I think I felt a bit silly for that, considering that it is covered in the news, and as you mentioned, it was declared a public health crisis five years ago now, um, and I lived in Vancouver and I've lived in Victoria, but I, it really sh- it really shocked me how little I understood about what was happening, and I wondered what your reaction was to the information you were finding out as you worked on the book.
1: It was, it was a lot of news to me, too. I think the average you know, media story today, if it's a short news story, is like probably five or 600 words, if that. Once in a while, you'll you'll see some really good feature writers happening. There's some amazing journalists who've been covering this story since the beginning. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, if, if we're just getting little snippets of it, the, the main messages that people will get through the media is a ton of people are dying. It's from um, you know, contaminated street drugs. And, you know, there's different people saying that we should do different things about it, like, uh, providing more access to safe supply or, or, you know, uh, decriminalizing drugs beyond that. Um, in the occasional profile story, you may see once in a while of an individual who has overdosed and died. That's pretty much it. And so obviously, um, the problem with that is that it's not really, it hasn't really penetrated into our society, why this is happening. Like why, and it's the questions I ask in the book, um, you know, I was really encouraged by my publisher. And you know, submitting the first draft of any book, you always kind of hold your breath. What are they going to say? And you know, they were they were super enthusiastic about the project from the from the get go. But they challenged me. They said, you know, write this write this more from you know the voices of the people who were there. Like, feel free to include more from them and follow your journey. So I I just did that. I tracked my journey. I didn't try to sugarcoat it. I you know, as you've you've read the book, I'm very direct and honest about you know, initially my views on um, drugs, like, you know, many people's were, and, and some people still are, where, you know, drugs are bad, so they should be illegal, and we should be punishing, uh, at least if not the traffickers, they should be deterring somehow people from using and people should just get into treatment and just go to detox. That was kind of where I began, obviously. And I, I, I at least knew when I started this project that the status quo was was not only working, but it was clearly a failure. Um, and it was probably maybe even part of the problem. And so I approached it with an open mind and I was surprised, just like you. I mean, I I wrote the book from the perspective of someone who goes through this process of kind of gradually learning about the extent of the problem and then getting to the part about, well, what can we possibly, you know, do about
0: it? Yeah. You mentioned kind of the the status quo and how we've been um, dealing with the opioid crisis and Criminalizing drugs in general, but you know we often—I I guess what always comes to mind is the war on drugs, which is the language that was used for so long. And what came through to me as I was reading the book was we really need much more like nuanced language and compassion and kindness, and not these war analogies. And I wondered what your thoughts were on the language we've been using to just even talk about the opioid crisis. And I—I th- I think the other t- thing that even just hearing you talk about it now the shift from hearing the stories and talking about individuals to just hearing the statistics. I mean, there's research out there that shows that when we just get numbers, it kind of just washes over us. And so we've kind of lost the humanity of this too, and how we talk about it. And uh, yeah, just what would you like to see change in how we write about um, the opioid crisis and even how we talk about it?
1: Yeah, that's a really, really important question. Um, I think there's two parts to this for me is one is at the real micro level and one's at the bigger kind of macro level at the, at the micro level, yeah, you know, you'll notice in, in the readings and in the book um, that there are words that are used, which in the book, I, I go, I quote people, so I, I can't change the words they use, but I do unpack them. And one of the, you know, most damaging and, you know, um, entrenched uh, language around people who use drugs is words like addict and junkie. And they're just so dehumanizing words. And, um, so that's to start with right there is words like addicts and junkie are really, um, are really not appropriate. They're not okay. They're harmful. They're damaging. And so, um, these are people. And that's why it's again, like, like many things in our society we're learning. It's, you know, people first language is it, it this is a person, uh, first and foremost, and they're a person who uses drugs. Right. Um, the whole language actually going from there is, you know, similar. So you can talk about, you think about language you see in news stories, like the word dirty syringe. Okay. Versus "used uh, use syringe. Okay. Um, you know, it kind of goes from there. So there's a really good language guide. There's really good language guides You'll find online from, um, advocacy groups who represent people who use drugs that just help educate you. And we have to see the same thing with, with mental health. Um, you know, and so I think it's important for people to educate themselves, just like we do around what are appropriate ways to speak about, you know, racism. Um, we, we we don't want to shame people for using language that they've always you know, used because it's what they grew up hearing, but they can be educated and we can change. We can change how we talk about things. And it's primarily about humanizing people and about um, destigmatizing people who use drugs. That's what the, the, the micro level language is, is about. At the macro level, yeah, what is the messaging? What is the story that we're telling ourselves as a society about the opioid crisis? Um, I would say after, you know, six years of, uh, almost six years now of it being declared a public health emergency um, and a good, you know, several years before that, it was emerging but not declared. So we're, we're close to a decade now, actually, of when it first began to emerge in 2012. We still seem to be entrenched in this, the, the language of um, that it's a crisis um, and that, there are these statistics and that it's bad and getting worse. And that really, there's some, you know, good research on the use of language like crisis to describe um, social problems. And it finds that people do have actually, as you suggested, sort of tend to tune out and numb out. And, you know, if I said, if I said to you, there was 20,000 Canadians approximately who died in the last six years from illicit drug overdose deaths, which is approximately the number, would it make any difference if I, if the number was 40 or 50, or what if it was only 15? Those are, those are massive shifts in the scale of human loss of life, but they have uh, essentially zero um, uh, impact in terms of like public opinion or media attention or anything else like that. And so that's where I really um, in my research research, try to do two things differently. First of all, there's a really, I think, great data and research we have here in British Columbia, which I, I heavily rely on in my research in the book. It's great to have data. You have to have the data, but that's not enough. So the two other things that I, I think you need to have beyond statistics, one is um, obviously personal accounts. And these are the, the detail that, that I needed to understand and answer deeper questions that I had about, like, why are people using these drugs? You know, why... Why, are, why can't they just stop? Um, why would a safe supply be helpful to someone and not just be enabling their drug use and make them worse off than before? These are, these are questions which I put in my book, which if, you know, as I say in the book later, they're loaded questions, right? They're completely biased and loaded, but those are the questions that are in the minds of people. And so that's why as an author, I felt it was important to kind of just expose that and be approach it directly and upfront because we need to do that. And um, so those personal stories and anecdotes of people's lived experiences is is very, very important. And then the third thing um, that I try to do in the book is is a really significant um, reframing. And I'm not the only person who's doing this, uh, just to be clear, but I think this is really central, is a shift away from it being, as we've heard as a society, including in this recent federal election campaign we're in right now as we're talking, from this being a criminal justice issue to it being a, a health issue. And flowing from that is having a compassionate and evidence-based approach to dealing with it. And so that's a fundamental shift of frame that if we take that step, all of the other things will fall into place in terms of the um, interventions that are needed at the public health level, in terms of how we think about people who use drugs, how we treat them in our society, and how our law uh, deals with them.
0: That segues very nicely into my next question, because I mean, that, that piece about the importance of of human contact and community and compassion in dealing with um, what's happening in the province, it really came across in the book and on various levels from the people Like um, the judge you mentioned in your reading, but also like the gentleman who uh, I forget his name now in Surrey, who uh, went around with the naloxone kits like that story really stuck with me, too. And just this multifaceted approach of just caring about people and community. And I remember when I was in journalism school going to Insight and them saying how important it was to have that that contact with the folks who are coming in because often they didn't have contact on that level um someone asking questions and seeing how they're doing and checking in and so i'm i'm curious how like how do you see that we teach people compassion and community versus criminalization how do we make that transition
1: that's a really big question yeah um I think the first thing that I can, that recurs that to me is just that substance use is, is one way that people um, self-medicate and try to cope with life when it's, they're really over, they're, they're overwhelmed and they're not supported. Right. And they're, and they're isolated typically, or they're in relationships, but those relationships are dysfunctional and fraught or they're surface level type relationships. Um, they're not deep relationships. And so you know, people turn to other things too, and we we all, if we're honest with ourselves, we all have um, a list of of things that are more or less socially acceptable, and some of those things are um, people celebrate, like you know, binge watching Netflix or having a glass of you know, a couple of glasses of wine every night. Um, those are sort of joked about and celebrated, um, but on the far end, we have things like you know, using heroin or street drugs, which is criminalized, and so. I think beginning to understand, as you know Judge Burgess said there, that we 're not any better than people who use drugs that there is a story that brought them there. I was having dinner with a, a really uh, lovely man last night who have gotten to uh gotten to know um his family and that through some of the challenges we faced with our our own family in, in uh, supporting my son who's disabled and he 's got a disabled son, so we we're having a chat last night and I just give it as an example, and he, he was talking about um, some of, some homeless uh, people in in Richmond, and they were putting up tents across the street, and he was kind of complaining about that. I know to be a compassionate guy, so I was kind of confused why he would be sounding that way, and and it didn't take much to redirect him. I just said, you know, everyone comes from a story, you know, no one's obviously choosing that life, and immediately you could see his heart just opened, and he then began to extol to me about how he could understand how that would be, and you know, it's not like he took any convincing. So I think we just need to come to a place of, it's basically treating each other with, with a greater, much greater degree of understanding. You know, when I, when I have done, having done this research now and some more work I'm doing in the criminal justice sphere more broadly, when I now hear about horrific crimes, uh, my first reaction would be, it was, it was lock them up and throw away the key. That was it. My first reaction now is completely different. It's, what has brought that person to this place in their life where that is the decisions they've made or the, the, the things they've done? What, what has caused them to get to that point and who, and who, and uh, what, what have we done as a society to fail that person? Someone who commits atrocious crimes, someone who ends up um, using illicit street drugs. Um, we have treated this in our criminal justice system in a very myopic way. We look at this one point in time where they've done something that we consider to be uh, criminal and the trial is designed to ignore any other information. It's completely tunneled on, did they do it or did they not? And then in the case of serious crimes or mandatory minimum penalty, you're going to jail. And so we, in, in one breath, absolve ourselves as a society of any responsibility we might have towards this person coming to this place and, and um, not supporting and helping them. And then we punish them and we, we send them to prison, which which the research shows will leave them more damaged than when they went in and, uh, does not rehabilitate people. So I, I have actually found, you know, a lot of looking in the mirror is necessary, both ourselves and as a society, when we see brokenness around us, it's not about the person who's committing it alone. Um, they, they are not choosing this life. This was not on the list of options at the high school guidance counselor's office, you know, dentist, doctor, lawyer, mechanic, um, baker or street drug user who's homeless. Like that was not on anyone's list of career choices.
0: Yeah. I I forget who meant, who said it in the book, but um, it really stuck with me about how we have a, a pain problem in this province. And I thought that was like, I mean, it's a very, it's a very simple way of putting it, but it really does kind of uh, capture it in a way. And and just as you were talking to, I was thinking about, I had, listened to uh, the podcast Criminal uh, uh, last year, and there was an episode on on forgiveness and reconciliation. Mm. And there was a lawyer who had practiced in a community in Africa, and I'm forgetting where it is right now. But she said that often when um, someone commits a crime, they see it as a failure of the community and the society instead of a failure Mm. of the individual. And so it's a moment to look at what we've done as a community to let this person down. How have we allowed them to be in a position where they don't have any other choices. And I think that's, I mean, I often think if we could get to a place like that with how we deal with some of these things, how much further along we would be.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with you. And the most uh, significant, but not the only example would be the, the ongoing uh, legacy of uh, residential schools um, that, that really came through in the research that I did um, and as well as the the various scoops that occurred with indigenous children uh, being taken from their, their uh, parents and sent to live in other provinces and even other countries without uh, any, you know, any kind of contact at all uh, afterwards. We know from the research that that dramatically increases, not just the um, the likelihood or risk of that individual um, turning to illicit substances to again, cope and self-medicate, but also their children. And There's even some epigenetic research that suggests this is actually at the like this trauma, this intergenerational trauma is not just passed down through environment. It's also it's actually at your genetic level. Um, So that's still pretty new research, but it it would not surprise me if that gets further, um, you know, confirmed and played out. And so what we what we see when we look at this is that the the current um, awareness that's being raised because of things like the um, continued um, public reporting and discoveries around um, the the bodies of young children at former residential school sites. Th- these are, these are reminders uh, that this is real. This is part of Canada's history of genocide. And, you know, until a few years ago, I was not even comfortable saying that. I was one of these people who was like, that was, you know, those were bad things that happened, but I didn't know enough. And it's like you mentioned about, you know, reading, reading the book, you don't know what you don't know. Right. And so, I, I only became more familiar with, with residential school system and the impacts, and I'm still learning, but through teaching a course on it at UBC with some colleagues and as part of our truth and reconciliation uh, calls to action implementation. And so the, the more that we learn about other people's um, experiences, um, their pain, it, it, it helps to build, um, build empathy. And we also, um, we also can, can find that in community we uh, can find healing. Um, you know, many of the people that I talked to uh, and um, spoke of the importance of a holistic response to this. Um, this is a particular priority of the First Nations Health Authority. And so an interesting piece of, of this research was that most of the public uh, discussion on, on responses to the opioid crisis focus on medical interventions, So things like uh, overdose prevention sites, um, safe supply, and, and decriminalizing drugs, so sort of public health and criminal law responses. I support all those policies, as you know, in the book. But the part that's that's still missing from that, um, what's described as sort of a West Western scientific um, model, is this more holistic uh, response, the idea that there is underlying trauma and pain that's driving and, and, and continuing to uh, put people at risk uh, for illicit drug overdose deaths. And so First Nations Health Authority takes a much more holistic model, and they look at um, things like cultural practices on land, uh, healing, um, the importance of, uh, of, of a spiritual aspect to uh, someone's healing. That really resonates with me. You know, we are, we're whole people, we're, we're, we're complicated people. And the substance use is the problem that presents itself because people are dying, but it is, it is a symptom of the deeper problems that the people have experienced
0: my last question for you and and i think you've you've kind of mentioned it both in the book but as we've been talking but often when i i chat with folks about their books i think i think writers we go into writing books knowing we'll probably come out the other side different uh, often it's just because books take so long to to be written but often there's there's part of the process of writing that changes us And I wondered if you expected that with this project and if you were surprised by the impact that it had on you.
1: I, I did not know where I was going to end up intellectually on this project. I did really go into it with an open mind. Um, And so I'm not totally, I'm not, I'm, 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 I'm surprised that I went as far as I did though. Uh, You know, when I started this project, I knew people were going to be calling to decriminalize or legalize drugs. And I just, I just, could not see myself getting there. I, I just couldn't see it. I was like, there's no way I'm end up doing that. And as you know, at the end of the book, I'm talking about handing out, you know, t-shirts, the war on drugs, is, you know, not only been a failure, it's, it's caused uh, one of the causes uh, of the opioid crisis, the principal cause. And so that, that to me is, is kind of part of the story. Um, the bigger part though, has been the heart journey. Um, I find myself uh, as part of this project, but also just in my, this stage of my life more generally uh, crying a lot more, you know, and um, it's uh it often happened even this year teaching on Zoom, and I'm kind of glad my camera, <laughs> kind of glad my camera was off because I would be, you know, teaching on a on a topic and you'll have a short clip or some video, of someone sharing their story or something in my either my criminal law class or this um, TRC type course that we're teaching, and it would bring me to tears. i I'd, I'd seen it several times, and I'm I'm just like you know I'm okay with that. No, I think that's a good thing. We you know, we need to be more uh, trauma-informed as we approach our uh, professional careers as as law students, lawyers, judges. Um, this is at a very early stage. Um, I've just recently um, rebooted my criminal law course for this year with a, a much bigger focus. Uh, one of our first classes is actually on trauma perspe- trauma-informed perspectives. And um, I think really understanding that um, both the system causes uh, and perpetuates trauma and for us to you know, as professionals, whether it says researchers and writers or as uh, people who are supporting others who have been through trauma, we need to understand a lot more about, about trauma and how it affects people, uh, how we've been affected by it in smaller or bigger ways, and, and realize that everyone's on, on a journey. You know, everyone's on a journey and they're, they're trying. Um, and, and when people, um, people have been much more willing and open with me as I've become more open with them about my struggles and challenges in life. And it's led to far deeper relationships, and um, y- you know isolation is really uh, so de- so so deadly in so many ways. Isolating ourselves. Um, so this this whole this whole journey for me has been really uh, significant and, and powerful, and it's also uh, pushed me even further. Um, I feel like overdose is really the kind of first big step I've taken out into this this kind of new world of kind of following both my heart and my head. You know, and and trying to pursue projects that um, that really speak to the injustice that we see in our community. And so, yeah. So I'll say on that note, sort of a I guess a good point to end is sort of stay tuned. We're I'm already starting with a team on the next uh, next project that really goes um, much broader, even than the opioid crisis, looking at the criminal justice system as a whole and um, and the massive uh, massive intractable problems with it, and what possibly we could do differently.
0: Thanks to Ben for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks to you for listening and subscribing to Writing the Coast. If you would like to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website, Uh, Just last week, just last week, we announced the winners of the 2021 BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as the Lieutenant Governor's Award for Literary Excellence and the Borealis Prize, the Commissioner of Yukon Prize for Literary Contribution. And if you'd like to learn more about all the winners, you can find that information on our website. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Tanya Lloyd Kai, whose book, Banksy and Me is a finalist for the 2021 Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.